Let's turn to Acts 6, 1 through 7, shall we? Acts 6, 1 through 7 says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man of full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of the Lord spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Um, as we begin, we're talking about uh, being a place of welcome, and it's always good to do those kinds of checkups as a people of God. This story I want to start with uh, is not necessarily encouraging. It doesn't come from my experience. It comes from a friend, and it comes from a church about 25 years ago or so, where uh, uh, this friend is a, was an associate pastor taking on a new role at the church, and his wife, who's also a friend, they were one of the first Sundays at this new church, and uh, the wife was in conversation with some folks afterwards, uh, to which a couple, that, it was a couple women with her who simply said, we've earned our place here, we've been here for a long time, it's going to take a while for you to earn your place here. Basically, know your place, there's a pecking order. That's just mean, isn't it? And there's no way of getting around it. That's just mean. And it's unwelcoming, and it's not a place that you'd want to invite others to join, is it? So the thing about it is that something like that, when there's an unwelcome presence, let me just point out from my experience that um, even if it's not to that degree, if there's an unwelcoming presence, you can smell it in the air if you're a guest. I've been to enough churches, you can sense it when there's an unwelcoming presence. And even if we're not at that degree, when we're, even when we're being nice, Sometimes our structures, habits, attitudes, and actions can unintentionally communicate something very similar. Not that bad, but something very similar that this is probably not a place to be welcome. And so that's why it's important to, to review this, right? Uh, if we take a simple Sunday morning, for an example, you know, who we choose to greet and talk to matters. Uh, it communicates something. Uh, who do we invite to, do we invite people to join us afterwards to fellowship or not if they're new or newer? Uh, do we seem interested when we're talking to other people? That communicates welcome or unwelcome. Uh, do we, from the stage, acknowledge, hey, you could be a part of things here. You know, when we were on sabbatical a couple years ago, when I was on sabbatical a couple years ago, one of the churches we visited weren't, weren't really greeted well at the door, but I felt like I could have been involved there and felt welcome still, remarkably, because it was so easy to check off boxes and be involved if I wanted to, if that was a place I would have chosen. So we can do this in a number of ways. Are there next steps? Are there ways to engage? Every church has a problem with signage. Every church has a problem with signage. There's not enough signage uh, in every church. So that can communicate something. Do people look excited to be here when we're together? That communicates welcome or unwelcome when we're here. Are we in hospitality mode or business mode as we meet together? All of those things create a welcoming and hospitable environment, or they tell people, you know what, this is not a place that you're probably going to want to stick around. We can smell it in the air when we come in. 
And so that's why we review this. We're talking about being warmly welcomed and creating a better belonging among God's people. And we've been looking at the book of Acts. We started in Acts 15 to look at where there were barriers for the Gentiles to get involved in the broader life of the church. We, we stepped back to Acts 2 last week where we saw that there were barriers of language. And we're going to see a little bit, not the language barriers, but we're going to see culture barriers this week that are here. And the truth of the matter is, even healthy churches have problems that they need to address. And you can see that in the New Testament church here in the book of Acts in Jerusalem. And when I say healthy, as far as a church, it can mean a whole number of things. But I, I specifically mean that it's a place that's growing in maturity in Christ as a people. And a byproduct is typically there's size growth that comes with that. That they're healthy in relationships with one another. When things are going wrong, we talk about it and we address it. That there's fruitfulness in ministry. That people come to Christ, that people are inviting that kind of thing. It's disciples who make disciples is what a healthy church looks like. Hence how, why we use that uh, reasoning here and that, that motto. What motivates a church to be healthy is what matters to us today as we look at this text. What motivates a church to be healthy is that when the mission is threatened, they respond. And that's the important thing. When the mission is threatened, they respond. And here's the point that we want to take away. A healthy church finds good solutions to advance the mission. Now, I want us to note, a healthy church doesn't just find solutions to advance the mission. They find good solutions to advance the mission. And we'll see what the New Testament church does to work through that. If we look at the key players in this text, we have the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. Some of you, depending on the translation you're looking at today, might have different words for those people. There's all kinds of different words that have been used over the years. Um, the Hebraic Jews are those who would have been living in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, kind of Judea, that's the area around. It doesn't exclusively mean those people because Paul, the Apostle Paul, would have been probably a Hebraic Jew, and he was not from that area. But generally, these are people from the area around Jerusalem. And, it, and they probably spoke Aramaic as their primary language, possibly Hebrew in there as well. Um, and they're going to be people that look culturally very different from their neighbors. The Romans had taken over the area over, over about 300 years before Alexander the Great and had taken over the area and made it very Greekish. The Romans had taken over and not messed with the Greekish part. They just wanted to rule it. And so you have this hodgepodge of culture. Well, the, the, the Hebraic Jews are the people who take that one lazy day off and look different than everybody else. That's who they are. They don't the culture around them at all. The Hellenistic Jews are the Jews of the diaspora or the dispersion that we saw in Acts 2, people speaking different languages, but they're still Jewish. They'd still come back to Jerusalem right, for what's going on for the different, the three feasts of the year, and that sort of thing. They're Greek-speaking, they're probably Greek-thinking in many ways, and they probably are people who had pulled in a little more culture around them in the places they came from. I was trying to think of a good way to think of a, a semi-modern example of this. You can find many examples if you think about it, but I thought a really good one would be if you go back 50 and 100 years in American church life, and you see particularly among sort of uh, in our case, uh, as our denomination, immigrant uh, uh, denomination coming in in an uh, American culture, uh, you know, the idea of playing cards and going to the theater and uh, dancing, for goodness sakes, like don't do any of those things, right? Then if those people are worshiping with people who are okay with that, but it's the same faith, basically, that's what you have. You have a cultural tension that's there. And that's a largely what you've got going on here between the two groups. Importantly, though, it's the care of widows 
that becomes the sort of the, the top issue that they have to deal with, the Hebraic uh, widows and the Hellenistic widows. I should point out that the Hellenistic Jews probably were, they were definitely imports, we know that. They moved in from other areas and probably later in life, and a lot of them moved in if they were widowed. So you had this, this issue. Uh, they came to be close to Jerusalem at the end of their life. In the, in the category of widows and taking care of widows, it's really, I think, worth at least looking through very quickly why this matters from Old Testament to New, and that is it's uh, taking care of widows in the in biblical context is an extension of the fifth commandment for sure, honor your father and your mother. It was very important that sons particularly take care of their parents, especially if one was widowed. That was a, an important thing, especially a mother uh, in, in many cases because there was no other means to make money uh, quite often other than the family. Israel was supposed to allot the edges of their harvest throughout the Old Testament for widows and those who didn't have means so that they'd have something. So leave a little bumper around the edges so people can harvest. You can see that uh, going over and above in the book of Ruth, for instance. Don't just leave the edge of the harvest, but Boaz is like, throw a little extra on the ground, you know, for Ruth. Um, every third year, uh, according to Deuteronomy, they were supposed to not just take their normal tithe, but there you can read it in the almost 30% could be given from everyone, and a tenth of that was supposed to go to widows and orphans, not just so that they would eat something, but so they would eat and be filled, basically. So they'd be satisfied. So they were supposed to take care of them, uh, and then some, basically. Never neglect widows and orphans, it says. Of course, Israel got in trouble for a whole host of things throughout the Old Testament. If you read the prophets, pretty much, you know, put your finger in any prophet, and you're going to see neglect of widows and orphans was one of the things that they often fell into. So by the time they get to the first century, the time of the New Testament church, the days of Jesus, there is an increased awareness of taking care of widows. And certainly in the early church, this matters to them because they had gone into exile for this, among other things. So they, they realized we need to do this. This is very important to God. If we look then at Acts 6, verse 2, we can see the disciples picking out the problem uh, one of many, but they kind of pick out the top, uh, top level thing. It says the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. If we were to put this not at the parts and pieces, but put this at the main issue that they're saying is the old system isn't working anymore. What we were doing isn't working. And it resulted in, I want to give us four things that it resulted in that we can see here that I think would resonate with us. The first is when the old system wasn't working, it results in a misuse of God-given gifts. So they're supposed to uh, devote themselves to prayer and the word. When it says uh, the word, it means preaching and teaching is what it means, not simply sitting around in a room and reading it all day. It means preaching and teaching it. And prayer on behalf of the body of Christ and those who don't yet know Christ. That's what they're supposed to be doing and for the vision of what the church is supposed to be doing. Uh, when it, and talking about waiting on tables then, that's not a negative term. I think it's easy to read it that way in English. Tables would have been a place both to eat, but in the ancient world, tables are also a place of banking. Um, so they're probably referencing one or both of those things because there's exchange of money going on in order to get food to give to the widows. And this is often the passage that we look at for an elder and a deacon system, or you know, we're basically on that with the leadership team and ministry leaders. It's not exactly that, but it, it does give us good ground for setting ourselves up that way. Because it uses that term deacon, that's the waiting on tables part. 
but it never calls these seven guys deacons, never says that it's a permanent job either. They're just structuring for what's in front of them. But we need uh, the gifts that God has given within a body of Christ to be used appropriately and the right way. The leaders have the job of preaching the word and praying, and it's for the benefit and maturity of the entire community. If they weren't doing that, they wouldn't be able to see the problem and address the problem. That's part of what's going on. Because of that ministry, they could see it, and because they then nominate these other guys, the care of the widows can happen appropriately because they have this giftedness to organize that. So when the result of an old system not working is that there's a misuse of gifts. Second result is that there's poor communication that we see. Maybe this isn't a result so much, but we're putting in that category. Um, if you look at verse 1, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them, what's your word in your translation? I have complained. Anybody want to yell out any other words you might have? What's that? I still can't hear it. Grecian? No, not Grecian. Complained. Complained. Oh, it says complained. Okay. You all are reading the same translation I am. Okay, that works. Good job. How about at home? You want to yell it out? Um, complained. King James. The Grecian, Sherry, we're going to get close. King James, I love their, their phrase. See if you can use this in casual conversation later. It says, there arose a murmuring among the Grecians, which is just a fun way to say it. And then if you go really old, John Wycliffe's translation of before the King James uh, says it's an outdated term, but it's just great. It says the Greeks grutched. That's just a fascinating word, isn't it? Because uh, it's a kind of a complicated word, actually, the complained word that's there. What's, com what's there is a combination of good communication and gossip. That's what's going on. So obviously the news got to the disciples in a couple of different ways. Good communication, they talk directly, and then gossip. And of course, it raises the issue, as we talk about being a place of welcome, when it comes to gossip, are we for it or against it? I hope we're against it, right? Um, I have served three different churches as a pastor in some capacity, um, and I would say that every single one were a little too practiced at gossip. It's a sin. We need to be mindful of that. We are a little too practiced in, at it. And we need to talk to people when you have issues, not about them. Of course, we can have conversations about things. But that's how the word is coming around. So it's not exactly as healthy as it could be. And that's part of what the disciples have to deal with. Third result that we can see uh, in all of this, that a bad system results in, of course, the misuse of gifts. There's poor communication. Um, I do think that's part of the result of the system and not just a, a feature of it or uh, something that led to uh, acknowledging it. But the third thing is mission creep, which is just a weird term. It gets used a lot in business and church life, but it's still a useful term. You could see that, that outlined in verse 4. That is to say, without intervention on the part of the disciples, the mission would start to turn inward and no longer outward. That's the danger. No more conversions, baptisms, and then all resources are used for the maintenance of the body that exists and not to reach anybody else. So you can see the final result in verse 7 is, you know, that many people come to the Lord, including many priests. Like, there's a great result by the end. But if they didn't address the problem, none of that's going to happen. They become an inward-focused group. And the story's the same today, right? Once we simply focus 
all of our efforts on the comfort of those in the building, we lose the, the ability to make disciples of anybody outside of the building. It becomes that much harder. And that's the path to immaturity in Christ, not maturity in Christ as the body of believers. We need to take care of one another inwardly, obviously. That's part of what they're addressing. But by doing so appropriately and setting up the right system, we actually are able to look out as we do it. That's what they're addressing in all of this. Finally, the final result in all of this is the one that probably stands out to all of us in this with the widows, is that a bad system results in inconsistent care. So some people are cared for really well, and some people are cared for not so well. And it's not intentional. You can see that in the text. But I don't know about your experience, but my experience is even when it's not intentional, it still hurts when you're left out, right? It still hurts when you're not cared for and someone else is, and you're in the same category. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons that we've tried to capitalize on small groups within our church, and this is, I think, what any church that's trying to be consistent in care will do, is to have small groups because we don't all know each other. It's hard to care for one another when you don't all know each other, but when you have a group that's focused on caring for one another and we can incorporate more people into that, and the more people that are a part of that, the more groups we can form and the more people we can care for consistently, that's what we're trying to do as well. That's what they're trying to do. Okay, let's divide this up, use the gifts appropriately so we consistently care for one another in the body of Christ. The disciples found solutions to the problem. They found good solutions to the problem, and that way they could avoid some of these results that were coming, coming their way. The way that they found them, we'll talk about here, but I want to use an example of why this matters, uh, which this was just a, a useful and striking example to me when I read it in a, a church book called How Your Church Family Works by Peter Stenke. Um, I, I think it's Stenke. It looks like Stinky, but He's a church consultant guy, super interesting stuff. He, he, he tells this story, though, about a World War II story when the fall of France happened, and uh, England had to figure out, we need to bolster up the, the defenses around our coast because we're afraid of an attack. And so they, they went and they found some older cannon technology they had around to kind of scramble together to get something. And they attached these older cannons that had been used in previous wars to trucks. They attached them to the trucks, and they pulled them to the coastline and set them all up and started training with them. And as they trained with these cannons, uh, they watched as you know, the, the three-person team, firing team, would put everything together, set it up, load the cannon, and then two out of the three would step aside and stand at attention while they fired and through the firing, and then go back to doing their stuff. And so they lost up to three to five seconds of time in their actual setting up and reloading and everything. So that was crucial time. And the guy that had set up all the system has taken pictures to try and figure out what in the world have we missed here? Why is this happening? And he finally goes to an older commander who had served in previous conflicts and he says, why are they stepping aside? What's going on? Why is this slowing down? The guy looks at that and he's like, oh, I can see why they're stepping aside. They're stepping aside to brace the horses for when they fire the gun. Well, if you remember at the beginning of the story, they used trucks to pull the cannon, right? There were no horses anymore, but that was still part of the training. And I have seen as pastor, 
that one of my jobs within the body of Christ is to look for places where we're still bracing the horses. To look for places where we could care better, welcome better, do better as the body of Christ. And we need to continue to structure better to do that. The disciples, the reason they can get to that is because they assess the issues truthfully. That's why they can get to this change. And sometimes we have fear of addressing a problem, right? Fear of addressing a problem that comes up is, and, and then not doing it, is still addressing a problem. When we're fearful and then we say, I'm not going to address the problem, I'm not going to fix it, it's still a, a response that says it's not a problem, even if it is, right? Fire on the bathroom, I happen to, for the first time in my life, use a fire extinguisher. It's as fun as you think. Um, it's like a grenade is what I tell people, pull the pin and aim. And uh, I've never thrown one of those either, but that's what I assume it is. You don't hold a grenade. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> See, I've never done it. So. But if you just let it go, what's the result? I'm making a decision, right? It's just not the right one. We're just letting the problem. And, and of course, you've probably experienced this kind of thing at work when you have personnel issues, right? If you don't take care of them early, what happens? They get out of hand. Same kind of thing. Assessing the issues truthfully, we don't want to be afraid to deal with the problem because then we are still, uh, we are still making a decision, just not a, one that's going to be productive in that. Second thing, we don't solve an issue if we just placate it you know, if the disciples would have just kind of just let this system continue on without dealing with it, guess what it's going to do? Magnify the hurt is what it's going to do. And it's probably going to produce loss and a lot more loss uh, as, as things go on. As we've pointed out here many times when Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount talks about who's blessed, he blesses the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers, right? The people who are going to go in and actually deal with the problem not those who simply placate the issues. The disciples assess the, the issues truthfully. They don't rely and rest on personal preferences either. They might have had people they liked better and all that kind of thing in the care of widows. They, they didn't let their personal issues and their personal preferences trump the mission, right? Preferences do play a part in how we do church life together, but they're not the deciding factor. The mission is. But that brings us down to the fact that when we assess things truthfully and if things have to change in the system, guess what? The rubber meets the road when it's not theoretical, but it becomes personal and we have to make decisions that actually affect us. That's what they had to do. And I want to point out in the midst of this that assessing the issues truthfully, it means that there's going to be change within that. And sometimes we can have this belief that change invalidates what happened before, but change doesn't invalidate the past. It doesn't invalidate past effort, right? One of the fears of change is that it brings loss, and that's what it does. You know, we fear change, we think because it's change, but we actually fear it because it brings loss quite often, and we have to weigh that out. But one of the other fears is that if we change things now, then why did I put an effort in the past on some other way or some other system? But, but that's not really actually all that useful sometimes in our thinking, because if you think about it, I'll think about it as a parent. If I'm teaching my kids to say please and thank you, I've heard a parenting expert point this out. You work on that for years and years and years. Please, thank you, please, thank you, please, thank you. Finally, one day, it switches, and they start saying please and thank you on their own, and you don't have to tell them to do it anymore. Does that invalidate the period of time 
when I taught them to say please and thank you. No, it means we get to, that's a foundational thing and we get to move on to the next thing. Change doesn't necessarily mean within the body of Christ that we're invalidating what happened in the past but building on it. That's what it means. But the other thing that we have to recognize and that they're recognizing here in the New Testament in, in the early church is that change is always necessary to fulfill the mission. What worked yesterday may not work today. And our solutions today may be tomorrow's problems. But we still need to change in order to fulfill the mission if that's what's called for. What does this mean for us? What does it look like? Um, two sort of challenges I would give you today. Real simple. And I know many of you already pray on behalf of the church and the church body and the life of the church and that sort of thing. But, but as a, a specific note, how can you pray specifically for the mission in a way that transcends any personal preferences? Right? How can, how can you and I pray even better for the guests that are going to come, that we can be a place of welcome for the guests, that we can be a place of welcome for our groups and for those who are part of this place, that we can be a place of, of where our systems are welcoming to everyone as much as we possibly can do, and a place where our gifts are used well, because they're God-given. How can we pray for that together better and more? And the other thing is, and this is, this is for you, Beth, um, and others, how can we be a helpful voice of welcome in our systems? Right? How can we get in the game more and be a helpful voice of welcome? You know, you might have seen beforehand we have our prayer team people walk around with name tags on like this. We, we specifically picked some that you could write your own on there and erase them afterwards for a couple reasons. One is then anybody can do it. And two, as they're walking around, they can pull in other people and say, hey, join me in prayer. But we, when they walk around, you can see that people are praying before we come to worship on Sunday. And we can join that prayer even if we're not wearing a tag. And you know what? You're doing spiritual hospitality when you do that. You are saying, this is going to be a welcoming place, and both the attitude of my heart and my focus is going to be on the Holy Spirit's work in this place. We have our ushers and greeters, they're the same thing now, where these kinds of tags, when they come in, so it's obvious this is a person who's welcoming. And we did it this way so they can also pull in other people who aren't on the schedule and say, join me in that. There are other ways that we can do this. That's just an example uh, where we can invite people after worship to come over there. I've made it my goal over the years, if somebody's a, a new here, to invite them to church next Sunday. Yeah, that's powerful to actually be one who does that. Be part of that welcoming as well. It's not hard to do. Invite someone to join one of the classes afterwards or to Wednesday night activities for kids, to a group, small group. Invite someone to church during the week. We should be a voice of welcome to people. A healthy church finds good solutions to advance the mission. We're all part of that game. And a healthy church is made up of healthy disciples who are making those kinds of decisions together to advance the mission.